Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, and we've got another great episode lined up for you this week. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to EU Confidential on whatever podcast platform you found us on. What a week it's been. We thought it was going to be the quiet week in Brussels when everyone went away for school holidays and we basically got prepared for five summits in the next seven weeks. No, it didn't turn out that way. So the US had the Trump drama investigation with those three arrests of people associated to Trump. And of course, in Brussels, we had the Catalan Circus coming to town, where Carlos Puigdemont, the deposed president of Catalonia, and six of his ministers came as fugitives to Brussels. And there was absolute chaos when they tried to hold a press conference. We're going to cover that and more of the unfolding sexual harassment and other harassment allegations with our panel. The main feature interviewed this week is with Ralph Falter. He's a former advisor to Giva Hofstadt and now in charge of mobilizing Belgians to vote in the 2019 European elections. And he's got a new book out because he's a historian and he's going to draw some interesting parallels between the populism and the Euroscepticism we look at today and other periods in European history. Rolf Falter's new book is called The Birth of Europe, and it's about the torturous steps that led to the creation of the precursor to the European Union in the 1950s. I spoke to him in the recording studios of the European Parliament about what that history teaches us all and how he applies that knowledge to his day job, mobilizing Belgians to vote in the 2019 European elections. Welcome to the podcast, Rolf. Yeah, great to be here. Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. We've both been journalists, political advisors, EU civil servants, and we're both from countries that have compulsory voting, Belgium and Australia. Yeah. So I feel like we're going to have a lot to the talk two, about in the, the next The only ones, I presume? There are a few more, a few mm. more. Countries like Fiji, for mm. example. But, you know, we don't talk about that. They, they also had their revolutions and their, their coups. Um, I wanted to start by talking about your current role, which is really trying to get the Belgian population interested in the 2019 elections and explaining the European Union to them. Belgium, it's one of the most pro-EU countries. It's one of the founding members. So explaining this election process and the importance of the union, that's an easy job, no? Uh, not that easy anymore as it used to be, because the 
skeptics uh, have gained ground in Belgium too, and there's more discussion about the tasks and purposes of the European Union. But the main task in Belgium is we have, on the same day as the European elections, national and regional elections, and so you have to try to send the message that, that the European elections are at least as important as the two other ones, because most of the lawmaking happens on the European level and no longer on the national level these days. And that's what you have to explain to the public. I remember in 2014, where the three elections were together also, I think the European elections took about 5% of the public opinion in the media. And what, what are the specific elements of having to appeal to a national population when, you know, you don't even have a single national public broadcaster in Belgium and you have one region more right-leaning in Flanders, one more left-leaning in Wallonia. Of course, Brussels, it's the de facto capital of the EU as well. So you have all these tensions between the Eurocrats and the local native population. But you have to tailor the message to the public opinions as it exists. And we have two public opinions, at least, in Belgium. And one of the jobs that you had before you came to work at the EU, you were an advisor to Guy Verhofstadt for a few years. And he was the Prime Minister of Belgium on on two occasions, I think. What's something our listeners wouldn't know about Guy Verhofstadt? Well, his present image is one who is quite radical going forwards for more European Union, but he was an excellent compromise maker also, otherwise he wouldn't have been so long Belgian Prime Minister. So that aspect of him, and watch it when the Brexit comes to its climax, could come up again at that moment. So he's an excellent compromise maker. And do you feel that experience helps you now try and relate to the Belgian population, because I'm imagining, you know, it's as a civil servant, sometimes you're stuck in a bubble. You're surrounded by other civil servants. Yeah. Um, it's easy to think in a single sort of European mode rather than yeah. put yourself back in the shoes of an average voter who doesn't think about the EU every day. Does that political experience help them? Well, if you worked in Belgium, and, and I've also worked on institutional uh, issues when, when I worked for Verhofstadt, and, and then you, you have to be aware of the sensitivities and the emotions of both sides. It's not always rational when, when you bring Flemish and Walloon interests together. Uh, the discussion is not always rational. It's also emotional, and you have to think about it when you try to make compromises. You have always to be very careful that if someone is defeated by a majority vote, even if it's a huge majority, that they get out humiliated. So you have to offer them something else. And that's an extremely subtle form of democracy, which is not yet broken through in the whole of Europe, so to say. Indeed. I think if the Brexit negotiators would bear that in mind, we might have a higher chance of getting to a good outcome there. Not only there, you have discussions about the way democracy is functioning in in some other countries of the European Union, so uh, Poland and Hungary, to name these. And Monet's vision on democracy is is still very much valuable, if you you read it. It's it's, it's a quote that I put in my book uh, on the history of the European Union, and it's a quote that comes from, from his memoirs. And that's the way we do it in Belgium also. You try to bring as much people in a compromise, and they should get out with their head up, not humiliated. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Now that we're talking about some of these historical European figures, it's a good time to bring into the conversation that you've recently published a book 
on the history of the EU, yeah. kind of the prehistory, the prequel between World War II and the Treaty of Rome and how this union really came into being. Yeah. Um, is there any lessons that really stick out in your mind about what we have to keep learning and relearning from that period as we go about building a union today? Well, one of the lessons, but that's a classic lesson for historians, is that you always have afterwards a better image of what has happened than when it happened in the time itself. And then if you go into detail for that period, you will see that people like Schumann, like Monet and all the other ones had enormous difficulties to have progress in, in the European cause. And that it was also linked, of course, to their national interest and what they did on the national level. And they were prisoners of the contradictions of the national politics and, and all these kinds of things. So there's nothing new in seeing that European progress is very difficult. It was very difficult from the beginning, although at that time the push from the public opinion towards more cooperation was far stronger than today. And what were some of the fears in people's minds? What is it that really allowed people to get over their fear or the national hurdles to really make a leap forward for European integration? Well, the fear was, of course, this was suspicion. These were old world powers that had fought two world wars with each other and you had to bring them together. So the British looking badly toward the friends and the Germans and, and, and especially these trees was always problem to overcome these old rivalries. But in the end, it went only forward when you could combine the European cause with national interest. That's what Jean Monnet, in fact, did. The fear of the French, existential fear, and quite logic after three, almost being three times conquered by the Germans in less than 70 years, was that Germany would rise again as a, an independent military power. And in that framework, the steel industry was, of course, a major issue because that was the weapon industry. And the dream of the French after the Second World War was to have the time, now that Germany was defeated and down, that they would have the time to make a bigger steel industry than the Germans. Well, then came the Cold War and the Americans said, we need the Germans to produce steel and weapons again to keep the Russians out. And so before it was so fun in, in 1950, the Germans already produced more steel than the French again. And it's at that time that Monet said, it's better if you can beat them, join them and propose them to cooperate in a European scheme to do together the steel industry. Then we can control them. And the Germans were surprised that the French came and, and proposed to them to work on an equal level again, because up to then... And it was just five years after... Five you know, years after the war. The countries yeah. had been bombed and... and, and and Adenauer saw his interest in this, and, and these two led them to the coal and steel community and the first step towards the European Union. And what was the next step that was required to get to that Treaty of Rome? I understand there was an element of France needing the security of a nuclear weapon um, for them to feel comfortable in letting Germany well, into the community. There's a whole story in between, of course. The, the steel and coal community is 1950, and then in between you have... Six months after the Schumann plan, there's the proposal for the European Defence Community. 
after the breaking out of the Korean War, six weeks after the Schumann plan. So they have been four years busy with trying to organize the European defense community. It's a whole and very Sounds complicated. Sounds familiar. So, We're having this discussion right now as well. Yeah, we? and in the okay. end, it was a French proposal that was killed by the French Assembly in, in August 19. 54. So there's, there's a whole long story and I cannot tell it here for the moment. But then in 1955, they had to start from scrap again, so to say. There was only the steel and coal community, but that was a small authority in Luxembourg. That was all. So they, and that, that was the Benelux countries, Spark and Bain, who, who tried to bring, start up the European Union again. And they had two proposals. One was a free trade area with the six members of the steel and coal community. And the other one was, that was the idea from Jean Monnet, Euratom, because the Americans had opened their nuclear technology for civilian use. Mm -hmm. That was the new thing. Eisenhower had launched this in December 1953. And so the, the basic idea from the beginning was, we bring these together because the Benelux and the Germans are interested in the free trade area, but the French are going resistance mostly, and they had to find an interest in the atomic energy, and atomic energy was huge investments needed. They wanted to do this huge investment, but if they could do it together with other countries, it would be less costly. And then there was the special element that some of the gaullists, the remnants of the gaullist party at that time, were in the government, and to placate them, they had to say, well, this way you are going to get the atomic bomb that we have wished for so long a time. And that was the guarantee of security against Germany rising again independently. Yeah, it had to be cleared first by Spark, then by the Americans in the end, also by Adenauer. And, and that made the French accept the deal where they also would accept the free market. It's it's subtle. Eh? It's You had a socialist... Prime Minister Guy Mollet and his Minister of Foreign Affairs, they 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 were in favour of the, 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 the free trade area, but they knew they would have enormous resistance in France, and so they needed the atomic bomb as a kind of car to offer to, to get the support of the Gaullists. And in the end it was done that way. And then the catalyst was the Suez Crisis, because mm -hmm. it's not sure that without the Suez Crisis, even then there would have been the compromise of the Treaty of Rome. And are we in a way back in a similar position today when we look at issues like how should a European Defence Union develop? Like what national interests need to be factored in to make that work? Because with Brexit occurring, France will be the only nuclear power left in the European mm -hmm. Union. That, that will kind of make them the motor of the Defence Union, well, won't it? There's a quote in the book also from Hervé Alfa, who was a French diplomat, uh, supporter of Monet, but he was a good friend of the Gaulle at the same time. And he says that the failure to make the European Defence Union in, in community in 1954 has handicapped the European community from the start on. If we would have had that, we would have had far more investment in technology. We would have really become a world power. Now we are not. So and that's, that's the, the Silicon Valley question, because if we think back yeah, to how Silicon Valley became what it is, yeah, a lot of that was driven by the defense, defense industrial yeah. complex. Well, yeah. they, they already said it, the Americans at that time. Defense is, is the way you invest in technology. So, so, so that was already an issue in, in, in that period. So that's one thing. And then the French atomic bomb, in the end, it's been a very complicated story where 
at a certain moment, the French were even ready to accept that the Germans would have their bomb a few years later. The Gaulle made an end to it and said, we have it alone. And this sounds all very ugly that the treaties of Rome were, were linked to the French atomic bomb. But in the end, it's, it's been an element of stability. It freed the French from their existential and try to understand fear for another military attack of Germany when it would act alone. They always feared the German army would rise up again. Now with the atomic bomb, they had the guarantee that they couldn't no longer be attacked by the Germans. And in a way, this opened the way for further cooperation with the Germans. And we have today um, not just questions on the defence front, but we're really confronting big questions about identity, what it is to identify with your country and your flag, but how you can balance that with being a European at the same time. Some people voting for populist parties or the UK and voting to leave the EU, they're kind of rejecting that balance in some respects. And I think it's very interesting how Belgium manages all of those processes. Um, are there any lessons that Belgium can teach the rest of Europe in terms of muddling through, finding a way to retain what matters locally, but also sort of managing any threat that comes from globalization or the European Union to those identities? Well, I think the Belgian way of, of, of speaking about identity is, is that you, you're never 100% one thing or another. If you, if you think in terms of 100%, you, you, you automatically get conflict. I must say, I'm an historian. I knew the period of the, the two world wars. But by writing this book, I've, I've still been astonished by the degree of destruction and 20 million refugees, 100,000 people dying from hunger, or most of the cities devastated in Central and Eastern Europe. So people knew and, and were aware, we've been so stupid. So, so let's try to work together as Europeans. Even then it was difficult because you have your national sentiments, which are still stronger than Euro Europeans. But in the end, they find a way to combine national interest with European interest and even making European interest as a way to get out of national deadlocks, political deadlocks. You could solve national political deadlocks by choosing for the European way. And that's what happened. That's and still has to because happen. now people are in a blame game where yeah. often the national leaders blame something that happens at the European level rather yeah. than using it as an opportunity to solve something in a discreet or creative way. Yeah, that's why you don't have to be afraid to be proud about your identity, your nationality, the region where you come, the continent where you come, but don't make it an absolute cause because then you're in radicalism and fundamentalism in, in, in a kind of way. And that's no way, none of us is 100% British or 100% German or 100%... I don't know what uh, citizen of Brussels. Uh, we well, all this is have me. I, I grew up in Australia, yeah. but my background was Scottish and Finnish. Not enough to get a passport, but you know, I had that in my mind growing up. And I've lived in Europe for fourteen years. I'm trying to become a Belgian. You yeah. know, it kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm it's a mix of leveled. everything, and that's okay. Like, there's no problem well, with that. My, I'm Belgian in, in a complex way. My father was from the German part. My mother was ah, from the Dutch you, part. You're one of the German-speaking Belgians. Uh, there are so not, few. Not me, They're not, like a rare endangered Not me. Species. My father was. Okay. My mother was from the Dutch-speaking part. They worked in a company in Brussels where both spoke French, but they didn't understand each other's language. 
So wow. my first language was French. I went to school in Dutch and I learned Dutch, uh, German from my father. And now we're speaking in English. And now we're speaking in English. Well, that's the European way. Yeah. Ralph Falter, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Okay, thank you. As we turn towards our podcast panel, I want to give a bit of context about our next discussion. The elected president of Catalonia, Carlos Puigdemont, who was fired by Madrid on October 27, fled to Brussels on October 30. Many thought he would try to claim asylum for Madrid's attempts to prosecute him. He did consult a prominent asylum lawyer, but at a truly chaotic press conference Tuesday, he said he would face the music and the elections called by Madrid for late December but only under certain conditions. Let's get into the drama now with our panel. Alba Finn, welcome Hi. back to the podcast. Hi, Ryan, and happy Halloween. Wow, yeah. Hi, Lena. Hi, Alba. Hi, Ryan. Happy Halloween to you. Do we say really happy Halloween? Why are we happy about it? It's a bit scary. I love Halloween. I, I didn't... As you are aware of. Indeed. Well... I, I saw Alba dressed up on the weekend, and, and she came close to topping my share costume from 2016 Halloween. Yeah. How about you, Lena? Have you been dressed up? Um, on a daily basis, we have Halloween, I think, in Brussels now. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh dear. Carlos Puigdemont certainly came this week um, as the EU's worst nightmare. That was his costume when he turned up in Brussels earlier this week. Uh, so why don't we make that our EU WTF moment of the week? The, the famous six ministers who have fled Catalonia and uh, we thought we're turning up in Brussels to seek asylum, and then they had a surprise for us. Lena, you have been closely involved in this issue. What did you think when you saw all of these ex-Catalan ministers turn up in Belgium? Well, I was um, first following this issue closely, and uh, as I uh, explained before, uh, Barcelona and Catalonia has a very special place in my heart uh, due to the time I lived there. It is really shocking what uh, we witnessed a democratically elected president, a European, uh, from a European country, from a European uh, region, fled his own uh, land to another European uh, uh, country, to another member state uh, of Europe. It's a pretty shocking um, in terms of saying that he's looking for freedom, for security, and this whole union was built on values of uh, peace, uh, human rights, rule of law, democracy. But this did he really very... have to flee to Belgium? I think that's still an open question. Well, he, was, he got a bit of an invitation, didn't he? he well, was... the Belgian government denies they issued an invitation, but mm. to give context to anyone who doesn't follow <laughs> the ins and outs of European politics, uh, the Belgian immigration minister essentially invited the ex-Catalan president to come and claim asylum here. And that may have been motivated by the fact that the minister, Theo Franken, is closely involved in the Flemish nationalist movement, so that he does have links to, to Catalan. Yeah, so I think that was one of the most interesting parts of the weekend, was that he kind of said, oh, well, he could claim asylum here if he wanted to, and then all of a sudden he arrives in Brussels. So I think, yeah, that was very embarrassing for the Belgian administration, um, I can't imagine what's happening internally now in Belgium now that this this is going on. If they went ahead with it, the Belgian government could literally fall apart because they're very divided over something like that. Yeah, I mean, they could grant him political asylum and not really endorse what he's done. Like, I think they could, but uh, it would not send a, a great 
no. um, also he's an EU to, citizen to he's the, allowed to, to be the, here you know yeah. he, he could have turned up for 90 days without calling it sort of fleeing the scene yeah has he has he fleed or hasn't he this is this is an, an ongoing question well there are criminal charges like, against him so I mean that's probably not what you should do in that situation yeah but, but then like Lena's saying maybe he shouldn't have been charged in the first place yeah I think it, uh, it's a lost moment. Uh, there has been years and years uh, we just lost them in, in dialogue to sit and talk. And we, uh, the situation now reached to an, an irreversible moment. And uh, the whole image of Europe outside of Europe is really shaken by that. What is Europe trying to transmit, let's say, to the third world, where uh, many commissioners, they go abroad, they are uh, so much involved in international conflicts, and they call on uh, people and countries to sit together. And then Europe itself uh, is unable to, to bring uh, two in the, in the same country to sit on one table and talk or mediate. So for how long? Uh, there will be this uh, no because uh, this is a member state I cannot uh, interfere and this is an internal matter I think Europe it's a moment for for us all to to say well lead by example please it's about time but how can people in Brussels do that if all 28 governments said we're not recognizing the declaration of independence that the parliament made excellent then why don't they um, help Catalonia to get a better deal just like the Basque countries so the mediation maybe not for them to legalize something illegal the referendum the the declaration of independence is absolutely illegal but mediation is still valid and is still needed at this moment is, yeah. is there a comparison or a contrast to make with someone like nicola sturgeon and the scottish independence movement i mean i can't imagine nicola sturgeon jumping in a car and then taking a ferry across the channel and turning up in Brussels and giving that press call. No, but the whole process was different because it was uh, allowed and legal, yeah, basically legalised by the fact that um, uh, London allowed it to happen. So I don't think we could ever really envisage her doing that now. Yeah, but she could run off and say, we're doing a second referendum, screw you, Theresa May, and she's not doing that. Yeah, but she didn't receive from the general prosecutor uh, a note saying that uh, the harder the fall. I mean, this is literally a, a very strong message from from the general prosecutor of Madrid to to Puigdemont and to the ministers. I mean, it's vengeance, basically. Yeah, I would not install. So no, I'm interested. There is a difference between uh, the fact that the the vote wasn't really legal and and the declaration of independence and how they're following up on it, which is pressing criminal charges, very serious ones. Um, and I think that's the difference, and I think that's what Lena's getting at. It's 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 moving it to a, an even bigger crisis. Um, and yeah, I mean, did they did they force him to come here? You know, they knew that they had this. He had this offer then, or an invitation to come and, and seek asylum here. I don't know. I think it's an escalation again from Madrid. But I wonder where else it can go. I mean, you essentially have to have a new election. Madrid didn't have to seize control in the way that they've done over the weekend, but you did have to have a new election, otherwise you'd have been in gridlock after this situation. And this, by the same token, Puigdemont and the Parliament didn't have to go forward with that declaration of independence, like both sides were escalating over the last two weeks. I am just very interested to see where it's going to go next. It is just like a never-ending, unfolding, dramatic... Oh, I didn't tell you about the press conference. It was absolute chaos in Brussels. So it showed to me how important it is to have institutions behind you 
And if you don't have an institution behind you, then it's very difficult to achieve anything. So the former ambassador for Catalonia in the EU, um, Amadeo Altafage, if he had been running the press conference today, there's absolutely no way that 300 people would have been jammed into an 80-person space. There was zero security checks whatsoever. Like, anyone could have come and gone. Like, the only security person I saw at any point during the day was a man dressed in the most ridiculous cashmere camel-coloured coat and a blue pinstriped flannel suit. I mean, like, the man looked absurd. He turned up for about five minutes before the thing sort of started, saw that there was a way to get pushed him on in and sort of turned on his heel wouldn't answer anyone's questions and then the guy arrives his own ministers got like stuck in the mob they weren't able to get onto the stage they got rammed between all these photographers and other journalists and they eventually got up onto the stage and like the cameras are rolling and they're like fixing their hair to make sure they don't look like they just got out of bed and I was like man if you people can't organise a press conference how are you going to organise a republic it's not that those two things are automatically linked but you've got to you've got to be more organised if you want to have people take you seriously. Isn't that how governments in exile usually work? But it was interesting. I haven't been a member of a government in exile recently, so I can't recall. So many people arrived to it, but yeah. Yeah. I didn't didn't get the sense that Charles de Gaulle did it that way in 1941 in France. But there you go. Yeah, but it's too harsh to judge a whole uh, government that has been running and functioning and contributing to the uh, federal uh, budget of Spain uh, by a little press conference that went chaotic because of the heated moment and because of 300 journalists decided to go and be present. Okay, we've got to move on to an EU thumbs up moment. I was involved in a story this week, another story about harassment in the parliament. I want to give a shout out to a centre-right French MEP called Elisabeth Montchartier, who spoke to us at length uh, for that story about her work in chairing the parliament's harassment committee. And I thought it was very brave. She was very upfront and she admitted uh, that there are a lot of problems and that you know it's a very tough job to do given the material that she has to deal with. Yeah, and I was very struck by your account of what she said, that she she almost seems a little bit traumatised by it herself. Um, So, yeah, I think that's another thing that we haven't really talked about. Like, how is this committee? They're not they're not really trained to deal with these kind of things you know some some judges who deal with sexual harassment cases and sexual violence cases they go to counseling and they have training i just hope that they're also getting the support that they need because um being bearing witness to these things can take its toll mm-hmm. well congratulations i think um congratulations to you ryan because you you were the first one to bring this uh, forcing it into the agenda of, of brussels and I think uh, we need to as well applaud uh, the committee and the head of the committee because uh, one one hand can't can do it on its own. So so well done. And I think it's only the beginning of a long process uh, that we all need to support and follow up and just not to miss it and forget it. I think you're right. It's a long road ahead, but we'll all be there on that road. And now that brings us to our Dear Politico moment for the week. And this actually comes from uh, one of the stories shared with us via the confidential form that we created online for people to tell their stories um, about the harassment that um, they may have suffered in Brussels working uh, around the EU. And it's a bit of a tricky one, so we have to redact some of it because we, um, we would be revealing too much about the accused individuals without having the chance to verify their details exactly. But we'll read out the relevant uh, segments of the letter and um, 
we'll get stuck into advising this person. So, quote, I work in a national delegation in a political party inside the European Parliament, and I would like to highlight the scandals that happen inside. I suffered violence and harassment in the workplace from the last boss, a woman. There is nothing sexual, but her attitudes are of an unheard of violence. The whole group is under pressure. Its management presents very serious irregularities. The situation is very serious. Then, speaking about another colleague, his psychological fragility makes his leadership impossible, threatening layoffs and having serious sex problems. It requires that people do things they should not do, including sexual intercourse. Investigate and you will find very heavy irregularities. Good luck. Do it for us. Now, I've got a lot of thoughts about this one. Lena, what are your thoughts? Now, if somebody was able to fill in the form and write and speak up and know that this is wrong, why they didn't stop it when it happened? Why they couldn't say, well, here I cannot go further or when they confided in them, why they couldn't help them at the moment, why they just waited till now. I always say that you're the source of your own experience and uh, you're the one who paved your own path. So it's really up to you. Yeah, I was going to say that maybe you should have a listen to the episode that we did on harassment in the parliament because we know that there's this committee now. You could complain if, if you wanted to. And I think it's very easy for us to be able to advise you to do that, but only you know how it's going to impact on your career. I think we've dealt with enough of these now to know that people are absolutely terrified to to come out and say, uh, I mean, there's two cases here where you've obviously suffered violence and harassment, and then another case where uh, one of your colleagues has exhibited troubling sexual behaviour. We, we're not really sure if that's against you or someone else, but again, you could go and talk to the person who experienced this sexual harassment, and you could go, you guys could all go together and make a complaint. And I think uh, that's another thing that came out of the news about the committee in the parliament that is covering this. You can file collective complaints, I think, um, or they have a word for it, it's like collective harassment. So what we would say to you is now I think that there has been so much focus on this over the last few weeks that no one is going to, well, people probably aren't going to disbelieve you if if this comes out. And I think we are now in another kind of um, era to the one we were in a month ago where this was all hush hush etc there's been so many articles on it Ryan has been kind of um, gunning <laughs> and trying to, to make to make things better so you could go uh, and, and complain however do I think everything is rosy now no so I do think that you need to be careful write down all of what happened very clearly because in this email I don't maybe you were writing it very quickly it's not totally clear you need to have every single date uh, proof if you have any and then you need to get your colleagues also to agree to to go and speak about it because if you have corroborating evidence that's much better for your case i think alva's last point is very important the idea of having more than one person coming forward with the allegation i think that really matters and i think one thing i wanted to say like having heard now i think 158 of these stories i think there are limits to what journalism can do to solve some of these problems so i think a journalist can be very useful in raising awareness about a problem. Like if someone is refusing to act on a complaint, for example, or justice hasn't been served, then I think journalism also has a really important role to play there. 
but I do think that you have the tools at your disposal to to start addressing some of this stuff uh, directly inside your political group. And one other reason why I say that is that um, you didn't come forward with your contact details. So when a journalist can't verify the story, it's much harder for us to be able to publish and investigate and so on. So that doesn't mean that we wouldn't look into this case based on the other details that you shared with us. But I think there are steps that you can take yourself and with your colleagues um, before the journalism can, can, can solve the problem. Okay, that's all we have time for on this week's episode of EU Confidential. Thank you for joining us and remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you found it on. And a big shout out to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin for everything they've done to make this episode of EU Confidential possible. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.